Good afternoon, everyone. It is the 17th of November, and this is the Audit and Compliance Committee special meeting. Welcome. With that, can we have a roll call, please? Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Shequin. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Peterson. Here. We do have a quorum. Great. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for making time for this special meeting. Um, are there any public comments? There are not any. Okay, great. Then we have our first item is approval of the minutes of our September 9th meeting. And um, I would I would ask for a motion to approve, but I first want to um, ask that they be approved with some clarifying changes. I, and those changes won't change the substance, any substance of the minutes. What I would like to um, just add would be to add that we, um, I know minutes are a challenge and I've done them myself. So it's always a challenge to, to make sure that everyone is, is on board with everything that's in there. But I wanted to ensure that we um, addressed some of the things that were brought up by committee members that are ex completely. So the minutes are great. I want to expand a little bit on the compliance issues. Um, we talked about the compliance issues and how it is done. So um, that was in there. And just one more sentence, I can add something um, with Rana. I'll send it to you, Rana. Inclusion, um, as Trustee Chacoin mentioned, there was, we were going to add to the dashboard a cybersecurity measure to the um, Audit and Compliance Committee dashboard. I It wasn't discussed what the measure was, but the, but the staff, um, Rick Kibler did agree to that. And so I wanted to make sure that that was documented. And then um, finally, well, that was it. Those are the, the things that I just want to expand a bit. And if the, if some, if my colleagues on the committee agree, then if someone would make, make a motion to approve with those amendments. I'll make a motion to approve with those amendments. I'll second. Great, thank you. All in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, so, so moved. And then our next item. Uh, Trustee Jensen, and so if you could just uh, note that the uh, the vote on approving the minutes was unanimous since we're doing this virtually. Thank you, Mike. The motion to approve the minutes, um, item A was unanimous and the full committee is available to vote. Thank you, everyone. Our next item is an action item, the approval of the financial statements. And this will be presented by our VP of Compliance and Internal Audit, Mr. Kibler, along with our external auditor, Brian Connor of Massa Adams. Hey, this is Rick, and I don't really have a whole lot to say on presentation. I'm going to turn it over to Brian and let him walk us through the presentation. Hey, thanks, Rick. I appreciate that. And we'd be happy to do that. Uh, John, are we going to pull up the presentation on our end or do we expect that to be? Um, I can pull it up right now. Okay, great. So we have a presentation here for you this evening to go through uh, the results of our engagement to audit uh, Alameda Health System. Uh, so we'll walk through 
this presentation, this slide deck. Uh, I believe you have materials uh, available. So certainly if there are any questions uh, on items that uh, we're referring to, or maybe on items that we don't cover that you had in your materials that you had questions on, uh, don't hesitate to uh, interject and let us know. We'll be happy to answer those. Uh, but we'll go ahead and start here on the next slide, John. And uh, we'll talk about your team. I think we, we discussed this in, in September, but uh, the team that we had uh, for the audit of the health system in the, in the current year was uh, pretty similar to the prior year. Uh, I'm the engagement partner. Uh, Kate Jackson, who's a healthcare partner with Moss Adams, was the concurring partner. That's quality control. Uh, position uh, that uh, that we use to make sure that uh, you know the financial statements are are uh, fairly presented uh, and that our engagement was conducted in accordance with auditing standards. Uh, Glenn Bunting is our third-party reimbursement uh, expert uh, who helped us uh, obviously with the uh, the other receivable supplemental programs uh, that the health system has uh, quite a bit of. Uh, and then John Fanice, who's on the call here uh, this evening with me, uh, is the senior manager on the engagement. We had Lisa Schick as our returning uh, engagement in charge. Current year. So pretty, uh, 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 pretty good continuity uh, in the team. And I think that was uh, uh, a large part of uh, the success, the engagement uh, outside of uh, um, the assistance from uh, Alameda Health Systems finance management team, which was terrific. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Next slide, please. So as I mentioned, the agenda here, we'll talk about uh, the opinions uh, in the reports uh, that we are prepared to issue, uh, some important items that we always communicate with those charged with governance. We do have some financial highlight slides uh, related to the financial statements themselves for the year ended June 30th, 2020. Uh, and of course, any questions or other items that you have, we'd be happy to, to talk about those. Next slide, please, John. So the scope of services, we've performed the annual, annual financial statement audit for the health system as of and for the unit June 30th, 2020. Uh, we've also performed uh, a few non-attest services that were required to disclose to you. Uh, the preparation, tax preparation for uh, the foundation tax returns uh, in addition to uh, single audit and assistance with uh, preparation of the data collection form, which is uh, you know to be finalized here shortly, we'll discuss that uh, as well. None of these non-attest services uh, impact our independence with respect to our opinion on the financial statements of the Alameda Health System. Uh, so we uh, remain uh, independent. Uh, with respect to those and, and the other non-attest services does not impact that independence. Our responsibility uh, under generally accepted auditing standards uh, is, is to provide that opinion on your financial statements. As I mentioned, uh, the financial statements themselves are the responsibility of your management team. So your management team takes responsibility for the financial statements, the preparation of those financial statements, all elements of the financial statements, the balances, the line items, uh, the statements, the notes there too. That's all the responsibility of your management team. And what we do is an express an opinion on the uh, fairness of the presentation of those financial statements and whether they're fairly presented in all material respects. Uh, and we conduct our audit 
uh, in accordance with the appropriate uh, auditing standards. In this case, uh, those standards are promulgated by, both by the AICPA and by uh, uh, the uh, OMB uh, government accounting standards uh, that are issued by the, the Comptroller General of the United States. So those are standards under which we perform uh, this audit. And, and really, the, you know, the two most important things here are the responsibility for the financial statements as well as uh, the concept of internal control and what we're responsible for uh, relative to auditing internal control. We do look very closely at the internal controls of uh, the organization, particularly as it relates to those uh, internal controls over financial reporting. In some cases, we'll test those uh, if we are seeking to uh, place reliance on those internal controls. And if we find deficiencies in, in the internal control structure that rise to a certain level, we're required to communicate those to you in writing uh, that the audit committee is, is those charged with governance until those deficiencies are remediated. But we are not expressing an opinion on the operating effectiveness of your internal control structure as it relates to financial reporting. So that's our responsibility under the relevant auditing standards. Next slide, please, John. So uh, the big news here, uh, the big reveal, uh, is that in your draft financial statements, we have an unmodified opinion on the financial statements. It's the highest level of assurance that we uh, can provide. Uh, and it means that we believe that your financial statements uh, as presented are fairly stated in all material respects. So classic clean opinion uh, on your financial statements, the draft financial statements that you have, we expect to issue those here uh, very shortly uh, after the conclusion of these proceedings. Next slide, John. You'll notice, uh, you know, the, the health system has always had uh, federal funding that, uh, over a certain dollar level that subjects it to uh, government auditing standards and a single audit. Uh, in the current year, you have an additional element to that um, compliance audit, that single audit program, uh, and that's the addition of the provider relief funds from the CARES Act. Uh, those funds, the auditing of those funds has not been completed at this point. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has not issued a compliance supplement, so auditors really don't have anything to test compliance with that program off of. Uh, so we're waiting for that. Uh, the rest of the programs that we would be required to test uh, have been tested. So John will talk a little bit more about uh, what we've done and what we still have to do uh, related to uh, the single audit. But... Uh, when we're auditing under government standards, we are required to issue a couple of additional opinions. One includes a report on internal control over financial reporting and on compliance as it relates to other matters. So as I mentioned, we don't have responsibility for testing the operating effectiveness of internal control, but we do have to understand internal control uh, and understand uh, compliance uh, as it relates to grants and fundings, et cetera. Uh, so we're happy to report that uh, that report to be issued at this point has no financial statement reporting findings or no compliance findings. But as I mentioned, we still uh, need to test the provider relief uh, funding and we're waiting uh, for the compliance supplement from the federal government to do that. And finally, uh, here we have some uh, communications uh, summarized that uh, we're required to have with those charged with governance, which is the audit committee. Uh, and to do that, I will turn, uh, turn it over to John. Thank you, Brian.
I'm assuming I can be heard. I've yeah. lost my. Yeah, I can uh, hear you, John. Pictures. You're a little faint. Okay. If you can crank up the volume a little bit. I will uh, speak a little bit louder. How is that? Excellent. Fantastic. Okay. Well, as Brian said, I'm going to go through the uh, required communications with um, with this governing body. Um, the first item here is significant accounting policies. Um, management is required to disclose its significant accounting policies and disclose them in, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, management has done that. Uh, essentially, the accounting policies are comparable with prior year. There have been no material changes to those policies. And so uh, as we review those policies, we found that they uh, continue to be uh, appropriately stated. As it relates to accounting estimates and them being reasonable, um, as you're all aware, there's quite a few accounting estimates. And I thought it might be just easier if I put them on screen versus uh, trying to memorize them and run through them. The first accounting estimate that management continues to report on um, is the estimate of net patient service revenue and their uh, ability to estimate them to be uh, in a net realizable amount. The second estimate is related to accounts receivables and those revenues due from various government reimbursement mechanisms. Brian talked about that a lot, and that's where we bring in um, one of our specialists to help us uh, work through those various uh, reimbursement mechanisms. We found those estimates to be reasonable. Brian touched on the provider relief fund. Um, Management has worked with the available guidance as of June 30th to estimate the amount of revenues to recognize in accordance with that fund. Um, as you may be aware, there has been some subsequent releases of guidance, and that guidance uh, was not available and is a material change from the guidance that was available prior to June 30th, and so um, in accordance with uh, accounting standards, that guidance is deemed to be a type two guidance, which means that management wouldn't be adjusting their impact for this guidance. However, as they've worked through and understand this guidance, uh, we believe that they have uh, materially recognized the revenue in accordance with the guidance that was available to them at the time um, of June 30th, 2020. The next estimate here um, continues to be a very important estimate related to the uh, Alameda County Employees Retirement Association. Um, the related minimum pension liabilities, the um, inflows and outflows that uh, significantly uh, have changed this year as a result of changes in the pension assets. And so uh, there are actuarial reports that management takes into consideration as it works with those uh, uh, reporting reported amounts. Management's estimate for the liability of professional liabilities, workers' compensation claims, et cetera, is uh, also actuarially determined. The useful lives of capital assets based on the intended use of those assets. And then uh, estimated liability for post-employment medical benefits, which is also actuarially determined. In our review of all these estimates, we found them to be uh, appropriately stated. Uh, one point of note, uh, there were no audit adjustments identified by um, the external auditors in the financial statements. There were some uh, client adjustments that we were aware of heading into the audit as management was uh, working through some of its adjustments and considering the relevant facts in 
producing their financial statements. But from an audit perspective, uh, Moss Adams did not identify any adjustments to the uh, financial statements presented to us. We have no issues to discuss with you related to our retention as the auditors for Alameda Health System, no agreements with man or no disagreements with management. We did not identify any material weaknesses during our audit procedures, nor did we become aware of any instances of fraud or non-compliance with laws and regulations. John, this is Tracy, yes. sorry to interrupt. I, I, what, um, with regard to the provider relief grant funds, because it can't be, um, the audit can't be finalized and um, there's the, the guidance hasn't been finalized, will there be an amendment to the single audit to address the final uh, information and the final guidance on the provider relief grant funds? It's a fantastic question. Um, so there won't be an amendment to it. The, the way the guidance reads as it relates to single audits, um, the amount reported in the CIFA, should it be different than the amount recognized by um, Alameda Health System at, uh, you know, in these finance statements as of the year end of June 30th, 2020, those amounts are in relation to, and so they're in relation to management's best information available to them. And so as they work through the, the reporting requirements for these funds, there could be a difference, but most likely we're expecting them to be timing differences because the health system does have through the end of the calendar year, and we're already aware that there's an additional three months available to um, all providers to make sure that they have properly uh, expended these funds in accordance with the requirements set out by HHS. So while it may not be exactly dollar for dollar, as I said, they are in relation to and so there is an allowable difference that would be picked up in a subsequent uh, reporting period um, for provider relief funds. Thank you. Certainly. Well, that's a really great lead-in for this slide. Um, on the face of the financial statements, uh, management has called out a specific line item for COVID-19 related grants. And embedded inside of that is the 15.8 million of provider relief funds that management has recognized at, uh, appropriately as non-operating revenues. And as Brian alluded to, uh, Alameda Health System continues to be a, uh, a re recipient of federal grant dollars. And these provider relief funds are just an, in addition to the um, single audit or uh, federal grant monies that Alameda Health Systems are receiving. Because it is a, uh, a brand new program and the uh, proceeds being received by Alameda Health System are in excess of the $750,000, it has been determined to be a major program. And once the HHS releases its compliance supplement, we'll begin working with management on uh, you know, talking with them about what those audit procedures will look like as we audit that. Um, Alameda Health System is not unfamiliar, obviously, to performing single audits and, you know, uh, tracking things. And so we've been working with management to get an understanding of what they're doing to track expenditures and how they're going to uh, or how they're looking at reporting in accordance with the, the current reporting requirements. So we're not concerned, as Brian alluded to, with the, um, the generally accepted auditing standards that they have to meet for that particular audit report. But when you do see the final report after the 
single audit has been concluded, you'll see two different report dates. You'll see the report date on this report, as well as the auditing standards report, the generally accepted government auditing standards report. But the uniform guidance report will have a different date on it. Based on the current guidance, um, I realize it's November 17th, and this slide says more guidance is expected in November of 2020. Um, Given that HHS put out their first round of reporting requirements in September when they thought it was going to be end of August, um, we're hopeful that by the end of November, we do have some of this guidance. So we'll start doing our planning with management. But you do have nine months from the fiscal year end to conclude the single audit. And of course, OMB could do an extension on that single audit report deadline, but at this point they haven't done that yet. So unfortunately we're in a holding pattern, but uh, uh, we'll be there right with you. All right, moving on to financial highlights. So this is a pictorial representation of the most current three years, 2020, 2019 and 2018 side by side with the major categories for assets and deferred outflows. As you can see, there's a, um, you know, with the exception of perhaps restricted cash and equivalents, um, some pretty big changes, you know, throughout the year. Our auditing of cash and cash equivalents continues to be a straightforward approach. We're confirming those, uh, those balances with your financial institutions and then uh, conducting audit procedures on those reconciling items. Accounts receivable has decreased uh, roughly 20, excuse me, $40 million from the current year. Um, a part of that decrease is primarily due to the decrease in net patient service revenues. Um, those did go down by a little more than 10% over the prior year primarily as a result of, of COVID-19 and the, the decrease of elective procedures. However, the other component of this is nested inside of the implementation of EPIC and management's decision to uh, focus on the clean accounts receivable balance that EPIC presents and uh, has fully reserved against those legacy system accounts receivables to uh, make sure that they're fully collectible moving forward. Um, our audit procedures here are primarily looking at the historical collections or the historical collection percentage as a percentage of subsequent cash receipts. And so in looking at that with the implementation of EPIC in September of 2019, we looked at both the historical collection percentage at the end of 2019, but also we went back to a, a more stable period in 2018 and 2017 where historical collections were relatively comparable year over year and use that collection percentage as a basis for comparing it against what management had recorded as accounts receivable and found their accounts receivable amount to be reasonably stated. Due to, excuse me, due from third party, um, if we have the financial statements open, you might be skipping forward to note five here where uh, the due to from third party is referenced. Um, this is primarily related to uh, all of these uh, third party settlements that uh, and the programs, the different settlement programs that, that Alameda Health System is involved in. Our audit procedures here uh, involve receiving schedules from management that 
show us the the change in these receivables, um, the different recoupments and receipts from these different um, third-party organizations and these different programs. We substantiate those receipts and recoupments, and then we evaluate management's estimates in those changes as it relates to um, completed audits and other information that gives management support to come up with the amount due from third party. And we found their estimates to be reasonable. Other current assets has increased roughly $50 million in the current year. A large portion of that um, relates to uh, subsequent cash receipts um, or behavioral health. And they have been received after year end. Capital assets in note seven has gone up primarily related to the implementation and the capitalization of EPIC. And deferred outflows, the primary reason for the decrease this year relates to um, unfavorable pension plan assets at the end of the calendar year, which also um, attributed to a, an increase in the net pension liability on the next slide. Our audit procedures related to accounts payable focus on disbursements after year end. We found them to be uh, properly stated. Due to third party, again, I'd have you shift over to, to note three. Um, rather than report these net, management has consistently reported these um, by offsetting each of these individual programs is either a liability or an asset. And so again, note five does a great job of describing the changes between these individual programs. Other current liabilities roughly um, increased by $23 million this year. It focuses on note eight and the largest portion of this increase is related to the capital cost transfer agreement with Alameda County, which related to about 20, $20 million of this increase. The liquidity facility is confirmed as a component um, and that's in note nine. Also in note nine, the net pension liabilities and the other non-current liabilities are described in note nine. The other non-current liabilities are relatively comparable with prior year, looking at a three-year average. However, as you notice, the net pension liability did have a sharp decrease. And as I mentioned earlier, um, it's primarily attributable to changes in the, the pension plan assets and as actuarially determined um, in conjunction with the change in deferred outflows. So a lot of activity going on as it relates to the pension activities and the actuarial determinations, taking into consideration changes in assumptions and the pension plan assets. This next pictorial is a, a three-year representation of net patient service accounts receivable and the corresponding percentage of net revenues. As I mentioned, the, the net revenues over the last three years have seen a decrease in the current year. We were at 566 million in 2018, 564 million in 2019. And those percentages as a per, or accounts receivable as a percentage of net revenue was relatively stable. But with this year, the decrease in net revenues to 512 million, and then also the cleaning up of accounts receivable and focusing on uh, EPIC receivables going forward, it, it's understandable why the, the decrease 
in percentage of net revenues has happened. Lastly, this next slide just covers operating expenses as a year-to-year -year comparison. Um, we find it useful in beginning our audit procedures to look at year-to-year uh, -year comparisons to identify trends where we might focus additional audit procedures. And as you can see, uh, ex operating expenses from year-to-year -year are relatively comparable, um, which is what we expected when we begin our audit. Any questions about financial highlights that I could recap or go back and cover for you? Brian, back to you, sir. Great, thank you, John. Um, we have uh, uh, some materials here uh, for you uh, regarding uh, the healthcare industry in our firm, but that's really uh, the, uh, uh, the prepared remarks that we wanted to cover uh, with the audit committee outside of questions that you may have for us, either regarding the conduct of our engagement, the performance of the audit, or the financial statements themselves. Uh, so Tracy, if it makes sense to you, we'll just open it up for questions that, that haven't been asked at this point. It's a great idea. Um, trustees, do you have any questions? Not for me. Pretty straightforward. Yeah, no, no, no questions here. It seems like it's pretty consistent with past. Uh, my only question, just, I, I don't, just in terms of um, your past audits of Alameda Health System, you've been our, how many years, Rick, maybe you can answer this. It's been a number of years. I've only been the chair of this committee for less than a year, but I think Moss Adams. So this is the fourth year, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, I think that that, that sounds right. Uh, Rick, I've, I think Moss Adams has been uh, your auditors for for four years now, uh, and I've been on the the partner on the engagement. I believe this is my third year. Brian, maybe you can just talk about the past three years that you've been leading the engagement and um, any 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 encouragement, any discouragement, any changes, any any insights you want to share with the committee. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, Tracy, you know, we've been, when you look at the, uh, you know, the broader picture of what we presented uh, here this evening, it's relatively consistent with our experience uh, with the health system over the tenure, our tenure as auditors. Uh, and you look at, you know, when I look at uh, the results of a financial statement audit, you know, one thing I think is, is of primary importance is do the auditors uh, make significant adjustments to the health system's financial statements in order for them to be in, in accordance with generally accepted accounting principles. Uh, you know, it's, there's lots of ways to end up with a uh, unmodified report on your financial statements. We can make a bunch of adjustments to the financial statements. And then, uh, you know, the, the statements that we're opining on are fairly stated, but they're not really consistent with what you're looking at on a monthly basis or an interim basis to make important decisions off of. Uh, so I've always thought, you know, the most important takeaway is are those financial statements that end up with the auditor's report on them consistent with what management prepares uh, on an interim basis 
uh, for those charged with governance to, to help make important decisions uh, for the progress of the organization. I'm happy to report that's the case here. We didn't have any adjustments uh, that we identified in the current year uh, that management wasn't aware of errors in the financial statements. That's relatively consistent with our history. You know, we just don't have a lot of adjustments uh, to the financial statements. As John had noted, there are late adjustments that occur in the process of preparing the financial statements as your management team waits for, you know, kind of final actuary reports, other information to finalize estimated balances uh, to come in. Um, but generally speaking, those financial statements that are prepared by man management are very clean and we do not adjust those. Uh, that's a very important takeaway. You have a very large, complex organization. In the current year, uh, we did not identify uh, any control deficiencies uh, that rose to the level of a material weakness or a significant deficiency. I think that's a very important takeaway uh, as you look at it. You know, the, the conduct of the engagement was smooth. Your management team is responsive. Uh, so you put all those together, and it's a very clean audit result which is consistent with our history here. Um, and so, you know, Tracy, that's, that's the um, recent history that we've been working with. At the same time, as you know, uh, a smooth audit uh, doesn't mean uh, we're looking at uh, a business that's non-complex or easy to run or operate. Uh, as the financial statements tell you, um, you know, it's just, it's, uh, it's a really complex uh, and difficult business to be in, the business of, of public health uh, in the United States and in California. Uh, so the organization certainly has its challenges uh, that I think you can see uh, disclosed or presented in the financial statements. But uh, um, achieving a clean financial statement audit uh, is not one of those challenges uh, at this point. So, um, you know, the, the current year, despite the challenges of being 2020, was pretty consistent with the prior years uh, as it relates to the conduct of our financial statement audit. And so other than the pandemic and the, the financial issues and ramifications that arose from that, you didn't identify any, any um, control or, or fiscal issues that you would raised to the to the community. No, yeah, no, no uh, control issues that would rise to the level of being material to the financial statements or would would we would characterize as a significant deficiency. The, the current definition of a significant deficiency is something that should be brought to the attention of those charged with governance, which is this group. Uh, the previous de definition is sometimes helpful to uh, allude to to understand, you know, orders of magnitude. Uh, you know, the initial definition of a significant was deficiency was something that was more than inconsequential to the financial statement. So it's a relatively low bar to have a control deficiency and conclude that it's a significant deficiency. So absent having any uh, material weaknesses or significant deficiencies uh, identified in your, in your systems, that's uh, a pretty good result. That's uh, pretty clean. Uh, as you mentioned, Tracy, uh, we have not tested the provider relief funds. That's open for testing. Uh, finalization uh, of the single audit is open. So, you know, it's possible that, that there could be uh, some compliance concerns 
that come out of that when that's complete. Um, but at this point, we haven't identified uh, any of those. Uh, so yeah, it all looks good. Uh, uh, it's, you know, a difficult year uh, from um, a, an accounting standpoint. Not only do you have uh, the supplemental programs uh, that John was referring to, just the reimbursement regime that you're under as a public health system. Uh, you have lots of reimbursement mechanisms that are very difficult uh, to estimate. Um, you know, the things don't get finalized for many years in numerous programs that you have. Uh, but we think your management team uh, did a very good job estimating those. In addition to that, you know, you have the uncertainty of the, the provider relief funds. Uh, you have the swing in the pension liability that you talked about, that John talked about, which is, uh, you know, actuarially determined. Uh, but a lot of things going on in the financial statement, a lot of uh, challenges uh, for your management team. Uh, but the financial statements that we prepared, uh, that they prepared, we believe are fairly stated. Uh, Brian, do you, do you have any comments about our, uh, our cash management? Uh, you know, I, I, we have such a unique system where a net negative balance and the fact that that uh, the county actually acts as, as our bank, sort of speaking. I was just curious uh, if you have any comments about that or thoughts. Yeah, they, they, uh, that, that's a fairly common stru structure in, uh, uh, and certainly in, in California public health systems uh, where the, the county treasury acts as a bank for uh, the uh, the health system, that's an enterprise fund of the county. So in that regard, uh, it's, it's very common. I think it's, it's uh, you know, I, I don't know that there's any uh, positives or negatives uh, from that. Uh, as you know, Ross, uh, your cash management um, or treasury function, uh, unfortunately, we, we, we wish that was a bigger problem that we had uh, we had a lot more cash to manage. Uh, yeah. And uh, uh, so, but the, the way that that's organized at the county level uh, is very consistent with how you see it throughout uh, the California public health systems. And, and as part of your audit, do you look at our, our net negative balances and the fairness of them? Yeah, we do. We look at those um, pretty closely. You know, a primary procedure for us is confirming that with the county to understand that the, you know, the, uh, the folks on the county side agree with the balances because if, if uh, it's recorded one way uh, at the, on the hospital side, it's recorded another uh, way on the county side. So we wanna make sure that those two items align. And so we had no issues with that. We confirm all those balances with the county and reconcile uh, any differences, but we also evaluate um, how those balances are presented in conjunction with the agreements that uh, are entered into between the health system and the county itself. And we found that uh, in all cases, um, there were, the balances were reported uh, consistently with the way the group and the agreements were structured between the county and the health system. Thank you. Um, Rick, would you like to add anything? Oh, I'm sorry, King Kenny. Excuse me. Yeah, Brian, um, I know that uh, you know, you do a bunch of stakeholder interviews and things during the process as well. And this year with um, with uh, the kind of access issues and things. So have you been able to have them uh, through Zoom or with the same kind of 
uh, you know, virtual rigor that you normally do when you're on site? Yeah, Ken Kenny, good question. Um, our entire engagement was conducted uh, virtually. Uh, so um, not just the, the important stakeholder discussions that we have, but all of our procedures were performed uh, remotely uh, based on technology uh, today uh, you, that there's, you don't really lose anything from an audit quality uh, standpoint in that regard. Uh, it's, it comes down to project management, appropriately planning and scheduling uh, the activities uh, that, that you need to do. So um, we didn't find um, any hindrance or any concerns uh, related to the quality of our audit uh, by conducting that uh, virtually with our team's interaction with your management team. Additionally, we were able to have all the conversations we ordinarily do uh, through through Zoom and in and other virtual platforms. Uh, so you know you can get a sense. You know what you're concerned about there is is not only what's being communicated, but how it's being communicated, sense of tone, uh, those kinds of things. This the platforms allow us uh, to capture that. So. Aside from the occasional uh, uh, child and student running around in the background, uh, you know, no issues uh, with those uh, conversations. And we were able to talk to everybody that, that we needed to uh, during the conduct of our engagement. Um, Thank you. Trustee Chaclein, do you have any questions or comments? No. Trustee Blue? Um, thank you. I, I would just be remiss if I didn't recognize the um, Vice President for Compliance and Internal Audit and his staff, uh, along with um, our CFO, uh, Kim Miranda, and um, her staff. I see Ann Metzger is here in the meeting. I know that, that they've all worked very hard to ensure that you had access to the information that you need and that the audit um, is successful and that you, you're able to, um, to do what you need to do to, to, to um, complete the audit in a timely manner. So thanks to everyone at AHS and to um, the CEO Del Vecchio with everything else going on. I know that this, this, this day is good to, to be moving on from this now as we move on to other, other um, audits and certifications and issues like that. So. Are we ready to, do you have any comments, Rick? Do you want to say anything or add anything? Uh, I would just say thank you, Brian and John, for uh, doing the audit and presenting tonight. Uh, it was like uh, a lot of activity trying to get everything organized and arranged, so appreciate it. Then are we ready for a motion to approve the? A move. Motion to approve the uh, item. The actually, Without. it is the financial. According to the calendar, it's the financial statements. Mm -hmm. The draft annual financial statement audit. So we're approving the financial statement audit, and then the this will Without go the single in. audit for the care. Thank you. So I have a motion to approve the annual financial statement audit. Second. Right, second. And then could I have a roll call, Ronna, please? 
here. Sorry. Um, my head, I was on mute. Uh, Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Shequin. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Yes. Trustee Peterson. Yes. The motion passes unanimously. Excellent. Thank you. And um, Brian and John, stick around because um, we have another meeting with the full board. I think you'll be joining us there. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Excellent presentation. Thank you. Our next item is yours, Rick, the approval of financial statements. No, you just did that. Next audit. I'm looking at the agenda and I see there's. It's the internal audit summary report next. Yeah, internal audit. Approval. And then there's the approval financial statement. That was just to make sure that we approve. (laughs) Okay. Item D, report discussion, internal audit compliance reporting summary. That was the same thing. Go ahead and you can take the agenda from here, Rick. I will take over the screen and see if I can do this appropriately. Uh, okay, can can you see that? Yes, thanks. Okay. I will try to move us through this thing. Uh, so I have one audit report to talk about, and that's the level of care review. And I don't need that in there. Uh, so... I'm not going to go through this in detail, but basically uh, patients are charged based on the level of care. And so the higher level of care, the more you get charged. If you get downgraded to a lower level, you get charged less. Uh, So whether you're in the ED or the OR or in a bed in a particular uh, wing of the hospital, we have standard charges for that stuff. And so what I was doing was looking at that process to make sure that when we change the level of care based on a physician's orders that we update the system whether that's up or down and uh, what we found was a few problems with that so go there okay so we were looking at that process to make sure that we were charging consistently and accurately and that we had valid orders every time we changed things. And uh, what we found was there was some billing rules that calculated these charges incorrectly. Uh, And then we had some nurses that were changing uh, the level of care based on what they thought it was instead of based on the physician's orders, and then we have a uh, unit management dashboard that prompts the nurses to make changes if something changes in the level of care, but we weren't doing a very good job of managing that. So we worked through all that stuff. Uh, the, The first big issue was 
when a patient was staying in the ED and hadn't gotten to a, a bed in one of the units yet, we were providing uh, the appropriate level of care based on the doctor's orders. We would have nurses come down from some of the inpatient units to provide that level of care when needed, uh, but we didn't always capture it appropriately in the system. And so we saw a couple of instances where we were undercharging $18,000 a night uh, because somebody should have been in intensive care and was sitting in the, the ED instead. Uh, so we had that resolved during the audit, which so is- Is this um, an issue for when there's not a bed available mm -hmm. immediately? Uh, that's a common occurrence. Uh, so when somebody gets admitted through the ED, we've got to uh, get them in a bed as soon as possible. If the units are full, we have to hold them in the ED until something opens up. But we can we can um, we can charge or we can a patient's um, status can be doesn't isn't completely dependent on where exactly they are in the facility. As long as the level of care is provided that would be appropriate for the unit that they are supposed to be in based on the doctor's orders. And so we would have to document that to make sure and so that somebody uh, could review that and determine that yes, we provided the uh, care that was appropriate uh, for that charge. Okay. Uh, so the second uh, issue was there wasn't a formal process for updating accommodation codes. Uh, so again, this is the level of care. Uh, and, and we just weren't doing it consistently. Uh, we weren't making sure that you get uh, charges put on your account. And most of these are going to be underbilling, but then occasionally we found some overbilling too, because we put somebody in telemetry unit, we stopped telemetry, you can't charge anymore. So we had to make a, a process to make sure that we capture the charges that were appropriate at the time. So that was done and training provided to the staff to make sure that we were doing it consistently. Uh, again, the unit management report wasn't being utilized, uh, a new process was put into place so that the unit manager uh, was reviewed by the nursing staff two hours before midnight and every two hours after that to make sure that we updated things on a timely basis if there was any exceptions. I mean, EPIC has a lot of uh, bells and whistles, but if we don't use them, we don't capture the, the charges correctly. So uh, it's still a learning process, but went through that and got that resolved. And then the last one was room and board charges when somebody's in the operating room. And so again, your level of care can change based on you finish surgery, you're still in the operating room, but everyone's scurrying around trying to keep you alive. Uh, that's, that's a higher cost than if you have a simple procedure and then get shipped back to your room. So if you're 
in the OR after midnight, that's when level of care charges kick in. Uh, so we, again, resolve that. We, we put in a ticket in Epic, tweak the system to make sure that it's capturing it because it knows the system knows where you are at, at midnight. So I, I liked the audit. It was, uh, I, I wish I could have been able to quantify things more because I think that there's a lot of uh, potential charging one way or the other that, that could be uh, captured here. Hopefully we'll see some changes in uh, revenue going forward. Rick, um, question. Did you, okay. I mean, did you feel these were one-off things that were, uh, you know, sometimes not happening? Or did you think this was a training issue that though you might have seen it in one situation that you could extrapolate this was happening across the system? You know, we saw it here. We saw it. We have to review a lot of data to identify these issues. Uh and, and I think that there are other like that that are out there. Uh, so one of the things that we're going to be doing later on is some charge capture uh, audits to, to go into areas to see how they're operating and where we can uh, see issues like this where they're not taking advantage of the system and capturing the charges that they should uh, be capturing. But don't know is I guess is the real answer and until we start looking in depth in these areas and then we will try to uh, quantify things a little bit better going forward that this is how much we think this issue is worth to the organization on an annual basis to make sure people keep working that uh, process so otherwise they kind of you know get bored with uh, or do things their own way instead of this using the system like it should be. That, that's Rick, a question. Rick, do you have do you have any sense of um, how to quantify the losses that are coming from this? No, uh, that's what I was I was trying to explain. Uh, we saw instances uh, just identifying cases where the level of care changed because we were trying to uh, pinpoint this and, and hone in on certain types of patients and how many times this would happen. Uh, you know, we saw examples of each of the issues that, that were identified here. Uh, we saw several of examples of each of them, but determining how many times that happened and what the potential impact was, uh, was just, there was too much data and, and not enough time. So is there any way going forward we could uh, quantify losses in this sort of, well, hopefully we don't continue the behavior, but, uh, is there a yeah. way to track that in the future? Uh, so th that's one of the things that I try to do on all audits is to quantify 
what the finding is worth on an annual basis. And so if I saw this happen once a month and, and it was $18,000 and I'd multiply 18 times 12 and say, okay, that's the, the impact here. Uh, and I think that's an, an important thing to do. Uh, I just didn't see the, the data on this one that uh, allowed me to do that and times it was occurring. And this is- I think uh, it's probably something we, we need to uh, uh, continue to, to look at beyond uh, this particular audit, just because it, the complexity obviously uh, goes uh, beyond the instances and the uh, uh, reasons for what was lost or, or, or what was documented or what, what wasn't. And as Rick mentioned, sometimes it's things that are under uh, um, captured and things uh, occasional times over. So you have those variables, but you also have the uh, payer variable as well. So uh, some payers pay by day, some payers pay by uh, the uh, severity or the uh, DRG that you have. And so it's not just a straight line from a charge to an actual um, um, charge that gets dropped because it may just be something that validates a level of care uh, and it may not actually impact the rate overall, but it still is something important to capture with respect to documenting the care that was provided to a patient from a quality perspective and from a, uh, a standard of care perspective. So there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation between what's documented or not and an actual uh, payment. Uh, but nonetheless, I think, uh, as Rick said, uh, it's important to always think of if there are instances where there's a correlation to uh, uh, or an ability to extrapolate even on a rough basis uh, what the potential impact here is uh, and then justify then additional resources for reinforcing training or enhancing training to be able to make sure we're capturing those things, um, uh, we should do that. So so I do think there's uh, a bit more we could do around that. The more important thing is just to make sure we reinforce the training and, and that people are using the new tools that we have uh, sufficiently. And I think it is, it looks a bit sporadic, not uh, something that can be, it doesn't look like something that's universal, but it also doesn't look like something that's just in one area or one-off one situations. I don't, I don't think based off of what I can tell here, but I think we should do a bit more around this. Right. Well said, Devecchio. That's that was my going to be my point. Also, it's uh, you know if you get paid for a DRG, it doesn't matter. So it's not going to have any impact on on net revenue. Um, and there's the licensing of beds also, and there's a lot to this. And the fact that we have not even been live for a year on Epic, and we changed completely how everybody in our organization documents. So. Um, I think we do need to, to pay attention to it and keep reviewing it, but I don't want people to take this too far out of, uh, out of context. Okay, any other questions on that? Uh, so as promised, this is my information security audit update uh, since I said I would put it on the dashboard. And uh, so there's action that's being taken on some items. Uh, keep in mind, we have a small uh, information security staff. Uh, we're, we're committed to get all these items done, uh, but it's kind of picking and choosing which ones to work on first. Uh, so the security risk assessment will start in a couple of months and will be done by June 30th, and we kind of go through that process every year uh, as part of the High Tech Act 
uh, to make sure that we're adequately protected from privacy issues. Uh, so my staff is usually involved in that one with, uh, along with the security staff. Uh, security policies, uh, at the time I wrote this, it was 90% done. Uh, I think a lot of those went to QPSC uh, last week and hopefully they've been approved and- uh, Actually, I think uh, it, was, it was pulled uh, for further discussion. So uh, mm. if they come back, there were some concerns about uh, um, the degree of scrutiny, I think uh, in terms of access to uh, records or activity of staff uh, so that, that if my memory serves me correctly, it got pulled to QPSC for further discussion because we ran out of time. So, but it is at level, yeah. So the, anyway, they, they've passed through uh, our corporate, our clinical policy committee and gone to the uh, QPSC level, but we'll continue working those and get them done shortly. At least we have drafts in place now. Uh, As I recall, um, excuse me, Rick, as I recall, Trustee Banerjee had asked that those, and, and I agree that those come to this committee when we discussed this at our last meeting. She had asked that the policies come to um, the audit committee. I don't remember having said that, Tracy Perek. Um, yeah, well, if, if you don't feel like it's necessary, then that's from right. QPSC to the full board, right? So it would be um, going through um, passing QPSC and then to the full board. That is yeah. correct. It always uh, goes to the full board. Yeah, I just, I just thought I heard that you had asked for, um, for the policies about cybersecurity to come to the, to this committee. But if not, that's, I misunderstood. Yeah, my, I, 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 I can't recall either. I, I thought it was, uh, as Rick mentioned, adding this um, uh, status on all the various things uh, to it, but the policy, I mean, we could obviously certainly bring it. Uh, the frequency of, uh, of this committee would slow down the, the, if it was coming through you for an approval. Or no, no, no. I, yeah, no, I don't expect that. Uh, oh. That's not what I heard. I just thought she wanted to see, I thought I, just, just highlighting them, I think it's fine. I think that gets to what was discussed by the by the committee at the last meeting. Fair enough. I'm sure there'd be some discussion of it over here, but I think as long as they go through one body for all the policies for approval and then go go to the full board, that that's um, just for informational purposes. Uh, I have worked closely with Ijaz uh, Ali the uh, director of security or, or chief information security officer and uh, done a lot of editing on these policies uh, to make them uh, what I considered palatable uh, before they were ever su submitted to the clinical practice committee and uh, have gone to QPSC. So if there's additional uh, feedback that needs to be done on these and I will be working with him to get those, uh, you know, redrafted and uh, approved as I have a, a stake in this game too with, uh, since a lot of it covers my uh, privacy issues. Okay. Uh, the security activity review hasn't started yet, but uh, I imagine that to be getting underway in the next few months. 
access authorization. It's about 50%. Uh, so that's really involving making sure we get appropriate approval for people getting access. And what we found during our audit was that uh, admins were approving people getting access. People were approving themselves getting access. And it was like, well, that doesn't work quite that way. Uh, so we need to put a little bit more meat around it and make sure that we had management approving their their people's access. Why do they really need it? And do they need access to that application? Uh, application ownership has started, but there's a lot of work to be done there still. Uh, we've, I think we've identified the applications. It's just getting people to... Uh, take ownership responsibility has been a little bit more difficult or even figuring out who the main users of some of these systems are. We know everyone uses them, but who should be in that ownership position and who should be approving access and all that good stuff. It's like, uh, it's, it's going to be a while. Uh, access termination. It, it says it hasn't started yet, but that's really, uh, there's a lot of activity around that to make sure that we get people uh, terminated uh, from their access when they leave the organization. It's just not as robust as we want it to be. We want it automated. Uh, once you get into Active Directory and get an email, if something happens and you uh, don't get on the system for a certain period of time or, or you uh, terminate employment, Everything's automatic. That's what we don't have yet. Uh, we're still relying on people sending reports and submitting uh, termination requests. So uh, until we get it to an automated standpoint, we're still going to have issues. Uh, password management. 25% complete. I think we're a little bit higher than that, actually. But uh, we're trying to make sure that the password standards that we've implemented are across the board. And, you know, uh, large capitals, small letters, numbers, special signs, etc. cetera. Uh, we had too many systems in place that were, were two or three uh, characters and you're in. And it's like, you know, can't have that. It's too easy to guess. Uh, security incident procedures. Uh, we've been drafting those, uh, used them on some recent incidents, uh, doing some fine tuning, and we should be good to go shortly, uh, get that process finalized. Application inventory, I thought I just talked about that. Oh, I was talking about ownership. Okay. Inventory, uh, it's more complicated than just identifying all the applications. We've got that part done. Uh, seems like 7% is low, but uh, just to make sure that we have a handle on everything, what are the password requirements, who's the owner, uh, and get all that stuff squared away. It's kind of in conjunction with the ownership uh, inventory. 
uh, generic user IDs. Each of us said it hadn't started yet, but uh, there are no generic IDs in Epic, which is a major part of our system uh, applications. And we've got to go through the other systems that are uh, going to continue to be used and make sure we don't have any because we've had several security incidents or privacy incidents because somebody was using a generic ID. Uh, so we'll get to those shortly. Uh, automatic log off. So we have features in place to log off your computer if you don't touch a key and 15 minutes or so, but some of those are adjustable procedures. You can adjust the time and make it, you know, 30, 40, 50 minutes. We want to, to block that. We want those things to turn off if you're not using them. And so when we do the uh, did the uh, HIPAA walkthrough assessments and wandered around the different facilities, we would see people's terminals on and nobody there. Uh, I, I thought about sending Del Vecchio some nice emails, but <laughs> restrained myself nobly. <laughs> uh, and event logging, uh, that's just to make sure we track the activity within our system. And again, that hasn't started yet, but uh, I think we're, we're looking at ways to do that so that we have audit trails on who's doing stuff within our systems and we can uh, address some of the security events that we think are out there. Um, Rick, can you tell me, do, do this, the desktops at AHS, don't most things have to be done by an administrator? I mean, can people look, tend to do administrative things or load software or change controls on their desktops or are all desktops different? I think that uh, as a general rule, you have to go to the help desk to get anything done. You, you have to have administrative uh, functions in order to load anything on your desktop. Now, there are some simple things that you can load on there that, uh, you know, some shareware or something, but it, uh, most of those don't work right. And, and you can't load it permanently to your hard drive unless you're an administrator. At least I can't do it on, on mine. Thanks. IT's got a monopoly on us there. Okay, any questions about anything else? Okay, so we've talked about 340B audits before. Uh, we're trying to get those audit results to 0% error rate. Uh, we've been on EPIC since 928 and now have multiple areas responsible instead of the one. And we are still having some issues there. Uh, but the most recent audit that we did uh, for core AHS uh, was 1.4%. So it's improved. We still want it to get down to zero if we get those last uh, modifiers. The problem is that we keep adding drugs 
we don't necessarily get them programmed with the uh, modifier in place. And then when I do the review, I have to notify them that they didn't put the modifiers on it. And we get it fixed going forward. And the billing area has to rebuild the claims that uh, were sent out in error. So at least we're not uh, adding any additional liability to ourselves. Okay, uh, freestanding, we had a glitch this last audit period and it went from a 10% up to a 29%. So we're trying to work with them and get all these uh, drugs. They, they don't have that many drugs. Uh, we just need to do a little bit more uh, proactive review and make sure that those are fixed before we start processing claims again. So hopefully the results of this next audit will be better. Rick, the three forty uh, oversight committee is still in in uh, functioning, right? Yes, every month. So, is this something that they could just kind of, you know, reinforce and uh, communicate? We discuss it. We discuss it at every meeting. Uh, we need to get on top of this thing with uh, the freestanding to make sure. So, this is one of those different teams. Uh, that has new responsibilities. And we haven't got uh, things worked out as smoothly with them as with the other team. Uh, so we're looking good on the, the main EPIC portion, but the ambulatory side is a, a different work process. And so we've just got to make sure that we work with them and get on top of that. Okay, uh, so Medicare and AHS, still 0% error rate, yay. We like it when it stays there. And freestanding on the uh, Medicare side is good, 0%. Rick, can you so comment like about why is Medi-Cal, why are Medi-Cal 340B um, issues what what's the difference? Why are drugs under Medi-Cal a problem for, for identifiers versus Medicare? So there's different rules governing 340B for Medi-Cal and Medicare. Medi-Cal has been in place for a number of years and there's thousands of drugs. Uh, Medicare uh, just started doing 340B uh, like a year, year and a half ago. And it has a, a much smaller uh, number of drugs that they do and, and circumstances where they allow you to use it. Uh, so it was much easier to program that systematically so that we get the, the Medicare part right. The Medi-Cal part we should be able to get right, but for some reason, with because of the number of drugs involved, it just doesn't quite get there. You know, we had had it there at 0% for uh, a number of months running when we were on Sorian Financials, but it took us uh, several years to get there. And then just as we finally got it cleaned up, then we switched over to Epic and started over again. 
And, and just as a reminder, uh, the state is um, um, changing the uh, drug Medi-Cal uh, benefit and, 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 uh, in Medi-Cal from being a part of the, um, the managed care plans uh, to making it statewide. It's part of the statewide pharmacy benefit change. Uh, it's supposed to take effect January 1, but we got notice yesterday, I think, that it's being pushed back to April uh, in light of all the uh, pandemic and, and and other challenges. So um, at some point, uh, the medical portion of the 340B uh, will no longer be uh, a um, a benefit, at least under its current uh, uh, plan for public hospitals in the state of California. So we'll have to continue to do this for as long as we can benefit uh, from the program directly. Uh, um, but eventually, um, if the current plan prevails, it will be something that goes to the state level and uh, the the benefit will be all at the state and it won't go down to provider level. Right after Rick retires, it'll be gone. <laughs> Just about. That's nice of them. <laughs> uh, so the 40B settlement activity based on uh, the reviews that we've done, and uh, we've settled for 400,000 on, on what we thought was about 456,000 and Liability, we've got a whole bunch remaining out there. Uh, we had estimated this to be about 2.1 million. And uh, it's very uh, time consuming getting through these settlements, but uh, we're working through it. And we've just received uh, a notice from HHS that they want to audit. They want us to do a self audit of 340B back to December of 2016 and tell them all the results and we're working on that now to see how we can respond to that. We've done been doing the audits. We're in the process of doing settlements and that's the whole point of this was uh, if we have paid things in error, they wanted us to settle and we're already in process. So uh, hopefully we're ahead of the curve and don't have to worry about that. Okay, uh, some other compliance initiatives. Information blocking, uh, which is the, the sharing of medical records and notes, uh, was due on 11-2. We got that successfully implemented. Uh, and basically, you know, uh, right now you get a test. The doctor wants to get the results before he releases it to the patient. Uh, we've, we've gone through that, uh, identified all the issues where we were withholding the immediate release of uh, medical information and upgraded the system so that it goes through automatically. And, and that, that uh, trustees, that, that date actually got shifted out at the last minute. Uh, I forget to when, uh, Rick, you may know, but uh, we decided because of all the great work our uh, IT and HIM and everyone else had done to just stick with the we were on schedule to get it done, so we just stuck with the original schedule. Yep. And price transparency, we're working through that now, uh, which is due one one twenty one, unless they extend it also. Uh, but even if they do, I think we're going to be ready for a one one implementation. We're going to go with it. Uh, Epic Care Link, uh, seventeen hundred users. We're, we're working through that. We've got most of that 
taken care of. I've just got to go back through and review it to see how we're doing. Do we have the master agreements in place, et cetera. So first quarter compliance issues, uh, as usual, it's mostly HR issues and privacy issues, which then ultimately become HR issues if we determine we have a problem. Uh, so we have the Full Employment Act for HR. We have other issues that uh, a variety of things that we're working on. Uh, the good news is that this last period, we closed 126 cases and that is huge. Uh, we were getting quite, uh, uh, we were getting bogged down, okay? Uh, if you look at the three-year trend, the green line is pending resolution. We were up to 137. We're now down to 103 uh, because the red line is going up, up, up. Uh, New cases continues on a pretty much straight line. Um, we're, we're doing what we can and what we can control from a compliance standpoint. We're making sure we get all those things uh, taken care of. My staff has been meeting uh, on a weekly basis to work through the issues and get those closed. We're, we're meeting with HR. Uh, every other week, we're meeting with risk and safety every other week, uh, trying to make sure that we streamline that process and get these cases worked promptly. Uh, so it's paying off a little bit. We'd like it to get uh, the caseload to get down even further. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, and the last things, compliance issue steady, okay. Uh, outstanding findings. We're continuing to do follow-up as long as it doesn't involve leaving my cozy little uh, office here. Uh, <laughs> now I am getting out some, but not as much as I should. And a lot of these issues require me visiting clinical areas. I'm trying to stay away from those at the current time. Uh, so hopefully we'll get these things resolved shortly and uh, they'll all be only new issues that we're addressing. Okay, so any questions? That was all I had for my report. Uh, you did have some written reports in the package that gives a little bit more detail on some of these. Thanks, Rick. Uh... Okay. Rick, do you expect that you'll be able to uh, keep that trend of knocking the pending cases down? It's a nice trend. Uh, if we keep meeting and working these things on a regular basis, then it should stay low. And uh, what, what we've got to do is figure out a way to get the HR cases down uh, or responded more rapidly that the problem that you have there is that uh, usually when you go and approach an employee about a compliance issue, they get stressed out and go on leave. And so then you can't address that until they come back. 
two or three months later. So it's like uh, there's some built-in problems on on those, or there are issues that require interviewing a lot of employees to make an issue or figure out what's really going on when when somebody uh, makes an allegation to the hotline. So uh, until we can get those things under control, it's probably still going to stay high, but we're going to do everything we can to minimize them. Got it. Well, um, thank you, Rick. And do you have any items? Do you want to say anything about our next agenda? I think we're going to move right into the full board meeting from here. Uh, so the only thing that I was going to say that we were going to talk about my succession plan, since I will be leaving at the end of February. And based on current circumstances, that's probably not a good idea to start recruiting at this time. Uh, so I've talked with uh, Trustee Jensen and with Del Vecchio, and we think that the best thing to do would be to uh, do an interim position uh, from, from inside and just kind of work through the, the next few months until things settle down a little bit. Makes sense. Is it the 30th of February? Have you, do you have a date certain? Uh, it's probably the 21st of February. Okay. It depends on what Sarah says when I go and talk to them. Well, maybe they could say March 22nd, which is the date <laughs> of our next meeting, and then you could be here for that. But if they don't say that, um, just know how much you're appreciated by the organization. And um, I, I did, for the benefit of the committee, I did, Rick and I did talk about this, and I'm sure King Kenny's aware of it as well, and other committee members maybe. So um, we, do have, we do have tremendous talent internally. Of course, there will be a search eventually, but um, I, I agree with Delvecchio and Rick that there, um, an interim, an interim placement would be ideal and 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 supported and successful and so um if we can't convince rick to stay i guess we'll have to do that well you'll have to take my uh right hand person <laughs> or left hand <laughs> thank you okay, well, i i think we'll be in good hands going forward Thank you for your service. You've done a great okay. job. Yeah, thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Thank you, everyone. Then um, with that, nothing else, then I will adjourn the meeting of the Audit and Compliance Committee.